You're listening to episode 421 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. It's cold outside, Max. It is super cold. And the only good news is it's not going to last long. This podcast is going to go quick. Where I'm recording is kind of chilly. We got a lot of good stories tonight. We've got the eaglet takes flight, taser drones in public schools, the GAO recommends the FAA create a strategy, the Dronut for inspections. I love the Dronut. Two MQ-9 Reapers for a dollar, a BV Loss autonomous inspection solution, a large autonomous blended wing cargo drone, and a smaller cargo drone. So I guess we should get started with the first story. What do you think, Max? Let's get started, David. The first one is a press relief from General Atomics. Um, the Eaglet takes its first flight. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Incorporated, conducted its first demonstration flight of the Eaglet air-launched UAS. They did this in Utah, the Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. I never heard of the Dugway Proving Grounds. Otherwise known as Area 52. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. That sounds, that sounds appropriate. So this was launched from a U.S. Army MQ-1C Gray Eagle extended range UAS. So, of course, the Gray Eagle is based on the original Predator. And basically, it's a autonomous UAS to be launched from a UAS to be as a loyal wingman or a low-cost added aircraft. So the flight was jointly funded by... Um, General Atomics, and the United States Army Combat Capabilities Development Command and the Army Research Laboratory. It's a low-cost, survivable UAS that can be launched from a Gray Eagle, a rotary wing aircraft, i.e. helicopter, or ground vehicles. So a survivable UAS as opposed to an attritable one. We've... uh been referencing those lately, it seems. So uh, this is, it's low cost or designed to be low cost, but not an expendable, hopefully, aircraft. I, I guess there's a tritable and then there's a tritable. Um, this is low cost and the scope is, it, it should be recovered. But if it isn't recovered, it's not as because of the cost, it's not as great a loss, but it's not, it's not primary mission is not to be a tritable. And I just said that thing. So I could say a tritable four times, five times. <laughs> um, so it, it's definitely a add on, you know, it, the, the picture that came in the news article was that of the gray Eagle launching this small UA, smaller UAS, which looks like it's about the size of a Hellfire missile because that looked like about the same pylon it uses normally for Hellfire. So that gives you kind of the size of this additional. So if you're thinking about a Predator or a Gray Eagle having two of these, you get three aircraft for the price of one. So, you know, with the Predator being the command aircraft and the other two being either forward scouts or other weapon system platforms. So... Pretty neat. Uh, who knew that we were going to be talking about UASs delivering UASs? And where does it end? What if an eaglet can carry two little nano drones of its own? 
Well, it, things get <laughs> tiny quickly. They do. They do. Okay, let's talk about things going kind of creepy. I thought this was interesting. This is from Marketplace.org. Taser drones in schools? The idea isn't completely kaput. Yeah, I didn't know that this was an idea to for it not to be kaput. So this is this is kind of one of those you read the story and you go, what's going on here? And evidently there's some talk about putting tasers on small UAV, UAVs to subdue dangerous people during lockdowns. Um and to protect schools. I don't know about this, Max. This is just with all of the th- school shootings and mass shootings. I, I I understand why this concept would come up, uh, but you know it just makes you wonder. I mean, it's just that borderline creepiness thing. It does have that tinge to it. So, actually, the story goes back a little ways, and the company that was thinking about this is uh, Axon. They're a law enforcement company, and they were thinking about this idea of putting tasers on small drones and uh, using them to protect schools, but they actually had enough sense to ask their own internal ethics board to uh, provide some input on this idea, and the ethics board took quite a while, about a year, I guess, and came back and said, ah, this is not such a great idea. And and then we have uh, the, the mass shooting at Uvalde, Texas, uh, at that school. And Axon decided that, well, reportedly decided that well, maybe they'll rethink this idea. So the article is, it's actually a transcript of a conversation. This was at a recent convention, TaserCon, which is Axon's public safety convention. And in this article, they discuss the document that the Axon Ethics Board created, which gives some insight because I guess this had not been publicly available or there was no information about what was in the report. Barry Friedman, who was the chair of the Ethics Board formally, said, quote, There was a group of us that were just concerned that as well as we could design this, and if designed well, as much as we believed it was something the world could benefit from, we just couldn't trust the overall variance in policing to make it a commercially viable product. The cost of putting a drone in every school and the quantity of surveillance sensors that would be required cameras, et cetera, that don't belong in school. So not only do you have a drone operating in the building, but with that drone comes the sensors to be able to operate it. And then you start getting into um, privacy concerns, especially with young children. It, it gets to be more and more down the road. So I, I don't know how you figure out all of those factors to make this viable. Yeah, it is a lot of factors. And I think uh, I mean, you could argue whether or not you know the the value, the uh, the benefit that this kind of an idea might have, leading or including preventing deaths in a school. Still, the complicating factors are, I think, just overpowering it. And I think that's what the ethics board concluded that you know you you're going to need a lot of sensors in order to make this effective. And you know, how are you going to 
how are you going to fill a school up with all these, you know, different sensors to uh, identify threats in a way that isn't going to be a problem uh, with the students and the parents of the students. Who's going to be the one to identify the problem? You know, all of those sensors are only as good as the guy or gal reading them. You can imagine a scenario where somebody does something and this drone fires his taser at a young kid only to have it not be someone who was suspicious or anything like that. And then it'll, it would be just all hell would break loose. So maybe we need to minimize this idea of this in schools, but it, it, the fact that it's being discussed is another reason for us to discuss it, Max. You know, aside from, from the school aspect of this thing, just the concept of weaponizing drones uh, adding tasers to them just as a law enforcement tool in general. Ah, I mean, that yeah, you use the word creepy. To me, that's, that's getting to be creepy. Uh, maybe that's a generational thing. You know, maybe uh, in the future, uh, people will see that as a, uh, you know, a viable tool for, for law enforcement and not be put off by it. But, I don't know, David. For me, uh, it's it just feels like it's starting to cross a line. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's that. Well, I, I mean, come on, Max. You're from Connecticut. You should be used to having weapons weaponized UASs. <laughs> oh God, that kitty! I swear, I'm never gonna live <laughs> it down. But um, we we joke a little bit, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely an ethical question. We'll we'll leave that to the experts. Let's talk about normal stuff like the FAA. However, the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO, says the FAA has developed planning documents to manage efforts to integrate drones to the national airspace, but they ain't doing it quick enough, and it, clearly they don't have a good enough strategy, according to the Government Accountability Office. So they have a criteria, or some criteria, for a comprehensive strategy. And they say that a comprehensive strategy includes seven elements. And the FAA uh, does have four of those elements in its planning documents, but it doesn't have the other three elements. They're missing. And so the FAA needs to, they're recommending, develop this comprehensive strategy that includes all of the elements. Um, and that includes things like being able to identify drone integration goals and objectives, which the GAO say the FAA doesn't have. And also the FAA only partially includes milestones in performance measures for, for all activities. Um, now the FAA, on the other hand, says, well, they are developing a drone integration strategy, but the GAO points out that strategy's release has been delayed several times, and I think they're wondering if it's ever going to see the light of day. And, I mean, anybody who's done any sort of project work, you know, you need goals and milestones, you know, and um, otherwise the goalpost gets pushed farther down, down the road. And it seems like the FAA never has a fixed goal and or it just sort of moves on to the next thing. And I, I kind of agree with what the GAO said, that it's sort of been 
amorphous and ambiguous to a degree that the government accountability office is saying there should be some concrete goals. I mean, you, you've got to be able to determine whether you're succeeding or failing. And right now, I don't think the FAA is aware of either. And the uh, GAO also points out that right now, if you're a drone operator and you want to conduct advanced operations that are not allowed under existing rules, well, then you have to submit requests by applying for waivers or exemptions to conduct those operations. There you go. I mean, that's that seems fine. But more than half of the industry stakeholders involved in this told the GAO that the FAA had not clearly communicated the requirements it looks for when reviewing and approving advanced operations. And that these stakeholders said that they experienced long reviews, lengthy reviews of their requests, and at times even received conflicting information from different FAA offices. So again, here it's process stuff that the, the GAO is finding lacking. And it, particularly maybe for folks um, outside the United States, the, the GAO is a, I don't know, what would you call that, a quasi-independent kind of organization, but it, it's sort of a, a general governmental oversight organization that looks at uh, different things that the, the government is doing or not doing and makes recommendations for improvements. So uh, they are just recommendations, but I think usually they are, you know, pretty well-researched, pretty sound recommendations. It's interesting that we're talking about the um, approval process for uh, waivers, you know. And Max, going back from when the waivers first started occurring, we had lots of people talking about what you needed to do to get a waiver. And... It was almost a little bit like the FAA was like, well, we'll know it when we see it that way. When we see it in paper, we'll be able to give it to you. But we can't tell you what it is, but we'll know it when you see it. Um, and, and this is kind of disheartening that they're still sort of going through that role, if we believe the stakeholders in this in this article, that, you know, Waivers should be pretty standard now. You need X, Y, and Z, you know, and if you're going to one part of the FAA and they're saying X, Y, and Z and the other one's saying A, B, and C and they contradict each other, you're not getting um, any process standardization. So it, it definitely, if the FAA is having those kind of issues, they definitely need to do a rethink. Now, I can see that when you're in the position of having to try to catch up, as the FAA has been trying to do, uh, catch up to the industry, I mean, that's a a kind of a recipe for uh, process weakness, right? I mean, we could have had a situation where the FAA several years ago said, uh, all right, full stop. Yeah, I know that uh, you guys want to do things that aren't in the regs yet, but we need to spend 12 months figuring out the process for allowing you to do things that aren't in the regs yet. That that doesn't happen. It didn't happen. And so uh, the FAA was sort of under a lot of pressure to to get caught up with industry. And I think that's, you know, that's when you find yourselves in a situation um, like this. 
I'm partially coming to the FAA's defense on this issue, but I can see uh, I can see how we got there. An- another area where the GAO would like to see some more process stuff is in the uh, uh, in developing and documenting a formal lessons learned process uh, for its drone integration activities. And you know, the, we had uh, seven uh, elements of. Uh, uh, the, the strategy, well, well, there's six key practices for a good lessons learned process. And so the GAO would like to see um, that kind of a lessons learned process formalized that would include Part 107 waiver reviews as well as the Beyond program. What will come out of this? I don't know. They're good ideas. What does it take to do the, accomplish these things on the part of the FAA? Well, more money and people. Hopefully this will this will get done, but yeah, this could be a tough one. I wanted to say drone nut. That's why I did this article. There's somebody running around flying a drone nut. I thought drone nut was a great name. It is. And this is fierceelectronics.com. The Clio Robotics drone nut, and that's a registered trademark. X1 is a small birotor ducted drone. Thus a donut or Dronut. So it's uh, it because it's a ducted power source, it doesn't have exposed propellers. That makes it uh well, a little bit more collision tolerant, let's say, than than other drones. It's small. This is pretty small. It fits in the palm of your hand. Well, that's what the article says, but you know, when you look at it, you can catch it in the palm of your hand. It's a little bit bigger than uh, something that totally fits in the palm of your hand. It's a coffee roll. It's not really a donut. You have yeah. to have a sense of scale here. Or a grapefruit, maybe. Oh, maybe a small There you grapefruit. go. But it uses this birotor thrust vectoring technology. And they see sensing and intelligence applications. It's autonomous. It uses the Qualcomm Snapdragon processor. It's a very uh, well-known and common processor. Uh, sensors include 3D LiDAR. And I like this part. It's got headlights, so it can navigate in low light or even no light. And, of course, like we said, it's collision tolerant because the rotors are basically shrouded by the rest of the electronics. Um, And it's designed for inspections in dangerous or confined spaces. It's an ISR um, solution for GPS-denied environments. So you have a small vehicle that that you can use in low light, provide GPS intelligence, um, can light its way by itself, and it it's man-portable, which is really kind of a neat package for something with such a silly name. And it's attracted the attention of the United States Army, too. The TAC Dronut... <laughs> is a small UAS project selected as part of the Army RCCTO Advanced Concepts and Experimentation Office's Army mission to rapidly develop, test, and transition advanced technologies to address high-priority items for the warfighter. So the goal of this program is to improve air platform kinematics in support of indoor and outdoor short-range operations in complex environments to help mitigate operational gaps involving the clearing of buildings, potential tunnels, and other enclosed spaces that are incredibly challenging for our warfighters. Right, so 
You got a building, you got a tunnel, you don't know what's there or what's not there, send in the drone nut. Definitely go to the website and check out what it looks like because it it's very interesting. You know, it's not as aesthetic as last week's uh, rotors, but it definitely looks like it's designed for business. Well, we talked about the Gray Eagle earlier and cost saving by using the Eaglet, but Again, General Atomics has decided to support Ukraine, and they're doing it by offering two MQ-9 Reapers for the cost of how much? For you, $1. I saw some of those headlines in the last few days. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's really great of General Atomics. But there are conditions. There's an asterisk. There's an asterisk. Right. So there's a couple of conditions. First is uh, Ukraine, this is if this goes through, Ukraine would have to pay about $10 million to prepare and deliver them. And secondly, Ukraine would have to provide $8 million for maintenance and support. So the, the $1 for two drones actually is $18 million for two drones. It's still eighteen million and one dollar. Oh, I'm stand corrected. That's David. Eighteen million and one dollar, but it is a deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the a new MQ9 would be normally um, thirty-two million dollars off the line, and that doesn't include you know the support and and other technical aspects that go with it. Now, one of the things that you wonder though is what level of MQ-9 is General Atomics willing to offer Ukraine? What will the U.S. government export rules say? I mean, there might be a a downgraded Reaper over a a normal one. There might be electronics. So even though this is a great headline, there's a lot to probably need to be worked out before this exchange of U.S. currency to... um, for reapers occurs. But I do hope that it's a true, gen, you know, generous offer. Sincere. A sincere offer. So BV loss, flying beyond visual line of sight at record-breaking breaking altitude with Percepto. This was from Commercial UAV News. Percepto has the FAA authorization to execute unmanned drone and box operations 200 feet above ground level without a pilot or visual observer on site. So clearly, um, this is a higher level of altitude for beyond visual line of sight. The Percepto uses an an automated detect and avoid system. And this authorization is only for a specific large Texas solar power plant. Um, But Percepto will you know, use this as a model for other industries, which might include applications in oil and gas, mining, and utilities. Which, Max, returns us back to the FAA not having Percepto create the standards for their waiver, not the FAA giving Percepto the standards for the waiver. You know, it is kind of interesting that like we talked about the Government Accountability Office article, this comes full circle. Here, Percepto got the waiver from the FAA, but they're having to use it as a model for their next endeavors. 
which may or may not work as a waiver. So Percepto has an autonomous site inspection and monitoring system. They call it AIM, A-I-M. And it's, it's sort of general purpose, it sounds like. They, they say it will automate, automate and unify visual data collected by any device, any drone or any robot using mini sensor or, or any camera. Uh, so that's one product they offer. And then the other product is this drone-in-a-box solution, Percepto Air. The autonomous drones, they're equipped with cameras, RGB and thermal imaging cameras. They have an ASTM-compliant parachute, which is kind of interesting. And it integrates into their AIM software solution. And um, in late 2022, I think we've talked about this in the past, the FAA granted Percepto a nationwide waiver for BV loss operations engineering. But again, this higher altitude expands on that nationwide waiver. So they're taking incremental steps to get what they need to move forward with what their goals are. So let's talk about air cargo, the next couple of stories. And you know what? We're not going to mention Amazon. Oh, damn, I did. (laughs) Drones will push the boundaries of what is possible in air cargo. This is from Lodestar.com. The Natalis Kona cargo drone looks like a X-48B blended wing prototype. It definitely does. When you see the, you know, the artwork for the uh, Natalis drone, it does really look like uh, this, a NASA prototype. That's a good thing because, uh, you know, if you're familiar with blended wing design aircraft, uh, you know, NASA has worked on this, Boeing has worked on this. Uh, One of the issues that comes up in discussions about this kind of fuselage for passenger aircraft is that, you know, how would you do the seating in there? Would you have stadium seating or, you know, when you've got kind of roughly a big triangular space inside how would you fit people in there? Would you have lots and lots of rows or just how would that be done? And uh, people suggest that, well, maybe this is more applicable to a cargo kind of operation where you don't really care about that sort of thing. And, and the fact that there's a relatively small portion of the uh, you know, seats with uh, that are window seats. So here we have a, a, a cargo application for it. But there's other, other um, advantages, they say, to this kind of a design. Uh, it's autonomous, so you don't need any pressurization inside if you're only carrying cargo. The blended wing design itself is uh, super efficient. It may offer up to a 50% reduction in emissions. And the particular drone they're talking about here, the this Kona, has a 4.3-ton uh, cargo capacity, a 900-nautical-mile range. But uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. But they actually have a, a, a whole family of these designs. And this particular one, the 4.3-ton uh, metric ton cargo capacity, is the smaller end of that scale. And Natalis says they've designed and developed the aircraft with a patent-pending diamond cargo bay, which allows for 60% more volume. It's designed for cargo can hold large configurations of standard pallets and outside cargo. And a remote pilot watches over the autonomous. So that 
pilot basically would be flying the aircraft. The aircraft would be flying itself, but it would have a pilot on standby monitoring all the systems remotely. And that's an aspect of this that we're seeing repeated uh, over and over again. We've talked about autonomous uh, cargo aircraft on the Airplane Geeks podcast. We're going to talk about that some more in the next episode and here in in this episode of the UAV Digest. Uh, But we see pretty consistent use of a remote pilot. Now, the role of that pilot the degree to which that pilot is sort of active in the flying of that aircraft seems to be pretty minimal across most of these. It almost feels like kind of a stopgap in a way. It just feels like it's a safer way to start a program like this. But Nautilus is also is also doing that. Also, the company also refers to their autopilot as being FAA certifiable, which if that's the exact word they mean to use, that would indicate that it is not certified yet. Uh, And they're hoping, I guess, that it it will be. It's hard to tell exactly where in the development process this actually is. And, you know, if this thing has actually flown yet, that's not clear. But David, they have four models of this. They do. Um, The first one when we're talking about is is 3.8 tons with a uh, 4.3 metric metric ton payload for domestic use. And it uses two Pratt & Whitney PT6 turboprop engines. So, uh, of course, if you've listened to Airplane Geeks and you're familiar with the turboprop world, um, to say the PT6 is ubiquitous would be an understatement. It's universal, highly, highly reliable, and and basically Pratt and Whitney Canada, the it it's the engine of choice for turboprops. There'll be a 60T with 66 metric ton capability for Trans-Pacific flights, a 100T with 110 metric ton capacity, and 130T with 143 metric ton capacity. What prompted this story was that. Uh, Natalis has a purchase agreement with Ameriflight for 20 aircraft, valued at $134 million, which is about $6.7 million per aircraft. Which seems a little low to me, you know? It seems a little low. Usually when they quote in the press aircraft purchase prices, they're usually, well, they're not usually, they're almost always list prices, which are oftentimes a lot more than what people actually pay for for the aircraft. So I don't know if this is the actual purchase price, or if they really are only $6.7 million per aircraft. Maybe it makes sense. Uh, Flex Support committed to buying two of the large 100T drones. And total commitments now are uh, $6.8 billion for delivery of 460-plus aircraft. Now, the key word in that is commitments. And if you've dealt with the aviation industry long enough, you realize that commitments are designed to be broken. <laughs> Many times, many times. But I, I'm, I'm very impressed by this uh, number of committed aircraft, 460-plus, they say. That's a lot of aircraft for something that's, uh, that we haven't seen flying yet. But in all fairness, Max, this is fairly proven technology, even if we talk about, you know, the blended wing body, Boeing and NASA have been flying for years, at, believe it or not, as a drone, as a remote control aircraft. 
um, to test the pro right. And we know that the PT six is an extremely reliable engine. So I'd like to see it fly because you and I have talked about this over the years. It's, it's just one of those things. That, it's one of those dream aircraft that you've always wanted to see fly because it's like looking at a B2, only fatter, you know, there's something about flying wings that are just amazing. We'll see. Hopefully Natalis will get the, we'll get, keep going and we'll, we'll get to see a first flight and then an introduction to service. Yeah. But we did also get to see the world's largest electric cargo plane be unveiled this week. And how far can it fly on its own? Pika, or P-Y-K-A, unveiled a large zero-admission autonomous electric cargo plane called the Pelican Spray. So as you mentioned, it's autonomous, designed primarily for complex agricultural operations on farms. And that's the, the spray. They, I think the company originally was focusing on these agricultural applications, but now we have the Pelican Cargo which is designed for just what it sounds like. Uh, it has extended range, greater payload, more uh, more volume for cargo, uh, range up to uh, 200 miles, payload up to 400 pounds and 66 feet of cargo space. And again, this is all electric. And loading can be done in five minutes with a sliding cargo tray. Um, the, the nose of this vehicle lifts a la 747 or C5. Um, it has four electric motors developing 100 kilowatts combined power with a 50 kilowatt lithium ion swappable battery. Batteries can be changed in five minutes. So while you're loading the aircraft in five minutes with the sliding cargo bay, you can be replacing the batteries. And the batteries can be recharged in one hour. So for a delivery aircraft, the turnaround time on this aircraft would be very quickly if they can if they can get what they promise. And it also has GPS and a laser and radar-based navigation, so it can actually fly at night. And uh, we'll put a video of this Pelican Cargo in the show notes so you can see what the Pelican Cargo looks like. And, of course, always check out our show notes because we have the stories, the links um, to all the stories, et cetera. And you can do that by going to dronepodcast.com or the uavdigest.com. And, of course, you can find Max and I on the various social media platforms, uh, LinkedIn, Slack. Uh, Max, do you want to talk about your new favorite platform for social media in interchanging? On Mastodon. Look for me at, at Max Flight uh, at squawk.mytransponder.com. So I guess with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. So this is David in Delaware. And Max in Connecticut. Thank you for listening.